This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Immanuel Kant is undoubtedly one of the most significant philosophers of the Western world, but when it comes to Kant's political philosophy, it's not what anyone would consider to be the most significant part of his work. In fact, Kant's political thought has largely been regarded in hindsight as one of the weaker aspects of his philosophy. And that's because, in part, his strictly political work exists in a shorter, less elaborated form. His work, Perpetual Peace, is subtitled A Philosophical Sketch, and that's exactly the form that it takes, a rough sketch. And as such, his ideas are not as rigorously outlined as they are in his more celebrated works, like Critique of Pure Reason, Metaphysics of Morals, and so on. It's the exhaustive nature and the exactitude of Kant's work on morality and metaphysics that sets him apart from the rest. His political work, on the other hand, is somewhat lacking in these qualities. And perhaps the deeper problem is that Kant's arguments as regards the political are not as likely to resonate, I would say, to ring true with the inquiring philosophical mind, right? They don't have as much claim to originality or uh, to the grandeur of his overall project. Kant is influenced by Rousseau, he's influenced by Locke, but his work in politics doesn't really seem to advance the ongoing philosophical dialogue as regards enlightenment thought. He doesn't leave behind a new turn in the dialectic that imparts uh, future political thought with some new revolutionary idea um, in the way that he accomplishes this in metaphysics and morality, right? So in short, we read Kant's political philosophy only because he wrote other philosophy in metaphysics and morals, which was far superior to it. This therefore raises the question, well, it raises a couple questions. For one, why are we covering Kant's political thought at all? And secondly, why is it that we haven't so far devoted an episode to Kant's broader philosophy, and why we probably never will? <laughs> and so to answer the latter question first, a comprehensive explanation of Kant's philosophy would require not an episode, but a whole podcast of its own. And frankly, such a discussion of Kant's entire philosophy is not really needed to comprehend Nietzsche, in my view. And if I wanted to spend my time doing that, I'd be doing the Kant podcast. Instead, I've included some discussion of Kant's ideas sort of scattered throughout the various episodes of the Nietzsche podcast, um, sort of where it's needed, right, to explain some aspect of Nietzsche's thought or the way in which Nietzsche is responding to Kant. And so maybe that can perhaps be an adequate answer as to why we haven't had a full episode on Kant yet. Although, in this episode, I will cover some of those ideas and you know, Kant's metaphysics and his morality insofar as it's sort of needed in order to understand where Kant is even coming from when it comes to politics. And with Kant, everything is sort of linked together. Um, but one might still ask, why is the first episode devoted entirely to Kant a focus on his political philosophy, this supposedly inferior aspect of Kant's work? And I think that question might still require a considerable explanation on my part before we continue. Kant's arguments as regard politics have not set the philosophical world on fire, 
But if I might make an argument that's blasphemous to the philosophers, perhaps what one contributes to the grand philosophical dialogue is not of the utmost importance in evaluating a philosopher's impact. Now, I'm sure what every philosopher wants is for his fellow philosophers to read his or her work, but would it indicate an even greater power of one's ideas if they attained prominence not just among the philosophers in their ivory tower, but among the general public? That's very rare among philosophers. I mean, Voltaire famously said that no philosopher has even changed the attitudes of the street that they live on, right? And as such, I'm not suggesting that the general public actually read Kant and was influenced by him. But I think that what one finds upon examination of Kant's political ideas is that they map rather uncannily onto the most widely held of political values that exist today. His political goals as he outlines them, would probably find near total agreement, you know, within the Western world at least. The driving values of his politics are the pursuit of peace and the respect for individual rights, values which are almost, you know, they're definitely held in the majority today. And Kant holds an optimistic view that mankind is able to come out of his immaturity and into self-actualized freedom, and that this is attainable in the political realm. Broadly speaking, Kant speaks for a political project that we might call liberal universalism. And I can anticipate the pushback, by the way, in calling Kant a liberal in this way, since in his writings here, there are important qualifiers to that, um, mainly when it comes to which forms of government Kant is most supportive of. And, you know, I'll address all that later. The important aspect here is that outlining an ideal form of government is quite secondary in Kant's considerations. Kant is far more concerned with the rights that every government is bound to respect. You could even call it the duty of the state to protect certain rights. It's the very purpose for which the state exists. And so just as Kant's morality is based on duties, uh, so is his politics. And so you can already, from everything we've covered with Nietzsche so far, see how there's those fundamental questions of politics we've asked, right? Like, what is the purpose of the state? What is the end that the state serves? Nietzsche and Kant, obviously, would answer those or that question with two very different answers. I would also put it forward that it's not for nothing that Kant influences the likes of, say, John Rawls, who himself offered political ideas to the modern world, which have been very widely adopted, or at least very widely talked about, right? We've probably all heard of the Rawlsian veil of ignorance and his theory of distributive justice. Virtually every advocate for liberal democracy finds themselves, in some phrasing or another, echoing the universalist ideology of Kant and Rawls, whether they have read their work or not right? That it was already stated before them by some guy in the 18th century. And as such, I would argue that Kant's political philosophy is actually of great importance to understand because he articulated the spirit of the age, if I could be a bit Hegelian. He was always destined to predict the movement of the European political ideology because he merely spoke out of the same zeitgeist, you know, the enlightenment zeitgeist. He captured the political aspirations of the time on the page. And 
these are the aspirations that Kant was correct in predicting, in some sense, would come into being the viewpoint of the majority. Kant's political philosophy winds up looking to the average person, um, particularly prescient, rather than inferior or unreadable, right? Most people, the, the, I guess what I'm trying to tease out here is that to many philosophically minded people, the most significant aspects of Kant's work are the exact thing that the average person would be, find completely contrived, labyrinthine, unreadable tripe. And the things that the philosopher says kind of ho-hum, f- thumbs their nose at, is exactly the thing that your average person would probably resonate the most with if they were to read, which is Kant's politics. Now, the thing is, Kant's politics is now probably so widely identified with the majority viewpoint of how a lot of people think about politics that it might actually have the opposite problem that it's almost too mundane to be interesting for for people. But uh, hopefully I'll try and make it interesting here. Um, So that's my argument, you know. Kant's political philosophy, it reads more like an interpretation or an explanation of the role of the state that you would expect to receive in wake of all the advancements in thought of the Enlightenment. Kant doesn't necessarily say original things, but he presents the ideas in a clear way. He's the voice of Enlightenment politics, you know, in contradistinction to the Nietzsche's and the Rousseau's of the, the world who see no value to progress. So when people speak in general terms and say there was a romantic, you know, uh, rejection of enlightenment ideas. This is what they're talking about. Kant's perpetual peace, right? The optimistic view of the enlightenment of human reason as this uplifting force in the progress of society. Now, there's already kind of a kink in that explanation, which you might have figured out given that we've covered the influences or even antipodes to Nietzschean political thought, sort of, yeah, in chronological order so far. So Rousseau actually comes before Kant and influences Kant. um, And yet he's part of the romantic rebellion against the Enlightenment and Kant is like the voice of the Enlightenment. So the historical narrative that we draw these like sort of clean, neat eras of thought, um, it does not work like that in reality. But nevertheless, we know that um, from looking at Rousseau and Nietzsche's work, they do stand as sort of in opposition to Kant in terms of their central orienting values. Um, Another thing also I'll just say as a final preamble is that Kant injects a bit more wit into his writing when it comes to these essays, or at least I find it to be that way. It's a bit more, uh, just there's more ease in his style, right? Uh, Than what you find in his books. Um, And so it makes them more approachable. That said, none of this is required reading. Um, it's another point of contrast with Nietzsche more than anything else. And so if you have to skip an episode this season, make it this one. Because knowing Kant's politics, it's not really that essential to understanding Nietzsche's politics. On the other hand, I think it gives us an opportunity to do a more thorough explanation of the central moral ideas in Kant, because we haven't devoted any serious attention to that topic in the past, except maybe because to some extent, my conversation with Paul Katsafanis, that's Untimely Reflection 7, I want to say. A lot of Kant's politics, well, it could be explained without delving into his moral philosophy. It's just, it won't be clear from a more critical philosophical perspective, like why those ideas are justified. 
And so we're going to begin our philosophical um, journey into Kant here with actually a look at his most famous idea of the categorical imperative, um, after we take a few moments, that is, to consider Kant as a person, which is our duty here on the podcast, right? Because I've already acted according to that maxim in the past of always looking at the philosophical influences sort of uh, background in their life. And so now I must will it to be a, a universal law, right? I can't treat Kant any differently. Sorry, that's a little Kantian joke, and it's probably about as funny as reading Kant usually is. Okay, so Kant was born in 1724, and he lived until 1804. So he saw the majority of the 18th century. He was from Konigsberg, which is modern-day Kaliningrad. That's the part of Russia that's east of Poland and separated from the rest of the Russian state. It's basically a, a strange geographical relic of the fact that the Soviet Union took over a bunch of land and ethnicities in the post-World War II era, and after the Soviet Union split apart, they held on to this swath of land, which offered Russia a port in the Baltic Sea, strategically important for any number of reasons. But back in the time of Kant, this was Prussia, what they called East Prussia, which Prussia extended across modern-day Poland. So basically, Kant is from a part of Germany that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, the old architecture is there, but the culture today is entirely Russian. So Kant's from Konigsberg, and he really is identified with Konigsberg because he was born there and he died there. And he, he his job was there. He taught at the University of Konigsberg. He lived his entire life there. He was active as a tutor and then a lecturer and then a chair of logic and metaphysics at the university. Um, and he maintained that position more or less until the years right before his death. There's a common story of Kant's regularity in his habits that, you know, the people of Konigsberg could set their watch by the time when Kant took his daily walk. Come rain, sleet, snow, or hail, Kant could be found, you know, at that time of day, walking. He would take his daily walk no matter what. And you could take that as sort of an indication of Kant's rigidness in thought. But I've pointed out in the past, we could say the same thing about Schopenhauer. Um, he was also very stubborn about taking his daily walk at the same time. And though Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche liked to mix it up because he traveled all these different places. Um, and obviously that's going to sort of change what his daily habits are like. But he also seemed to settle into a set schedule as soon as he traveled to a new place, right? So his landlord in Sils Maria, for example, noted that Nietzsche also took his two daily walks with a rigid regularity. And so maybe that's just an aspect of philosophers or maybe of German philosophers rather than a reflection of Kant as a stuffy, rigid moralist, um, even though he is that. Um, perhaps more important to understand Kant is that he just he never left the city of his birth, right? He lived, worked, and died there, and he, um, I don't know. And another thing I should bring up, actually, of oft-overlooked aspect of Kant is his hypochondria. Kant was anxious and depressed, and in those days they called this melancholia. Mostly he had medical anxieties about his own health, and he wrote in his journal of his morbid feelings and his attempts to use the will to master his own morbid thoughts. Without extrapolating too much about what this means about Kant, 
we could just simply say he has some of the markers of an individual with some kind of mental disorder um, that probably applies to a lot of philosophers as well. But maybe that's a way of recontextualizing Kant's love of habit and his adherence to habit, is that perhaps that was a sort of a safety structure for him, right? Um, and on the other hand, Kant's personality was not really said to be as rigid as his philosophical style. He was known for witty dinner conversation. He was a popular party guest. And, uh, you know, he was a dyed-in-the-wool academic is really the main thing. He was very comfortable in that role in life. He never endeavored to change it. He thought and lived with the regularity of a German philosophy professor. And the only difference between him and the average German philosophy professor being that, you know, his ideas would transform the entire philosophical discourse. So he has that going for him. Now, uh, Nietzsche characterized Kant's impact in Beyond Good and Evil. He writes, quote, It seems to me that today attempts are made everywhere to divert attention from the actual influence Kant exerted on German philosophy, and especially to ignore, prudently, the value he set upon himself. Kant was first and foremost proud of his table of categories. With that in his hand, he said, this is the most difficult thing that could ever be undertaken on behalf of metaphysics, end quote. Now, in context, that's from a section on the prejudices of philosophers in which Nietzsche breaks apart not only the prejudices of the philosophers themselves, but the prejudices that we have in regards to philosophers and in regards to truth-seeking to treat their work as though it were the product of a dispassionate search for truth, uh, which Nietzsche doesn't believe is the actual character of the will to truth, I'll put it that way. But even those of us who know this, right, I mean, if you're philosophically minded or philosophically interested, when you pick up a work of philosophy, you sort of treat the, you treat the ideas therein as though they were the product of a dispassionate search for the truth, I think in part because we imagine that's what we're doing when we're picking up the work of philosophy, is sort of looking at um, the philosopher's ideas in terms of whether they're correct or incorrect. Is that an error in the philosopher's judgment and so on and so forth? Um, you know, to treat it like it's a, a scientific paper rather than something which reflects the perspective of the, of the person who wrote it. And in fact, I mean, Nietzsche would argue, and I would agree with him, even a scientific paper reflects the perspective of the person who wrote it. But I, I guess in our culture, you know, uh, we're able to more clearly see that with philosophy that um, there is a perspective there, a moral perspective, right? We're more able to consider now, mainly because of figures like Nietzsche, at which morality did this philosopher aim, right? What was his goal? What was his motivation? And so to put those questions to the forefront and make them primary um, rather than simply treating the work as a dispassionate will to truth, uh, the product of a dispassionate will to truth, we ask things like, why did this philosopher find it necessary to undertake the philosophical project that he did, right? What, did, what were they looking for? What do they need what were they lacking, therefore, right? And so there's a very subtle critique of Kant 
and that Nietzsche quote we just read, insofar as Kant has perhaps the image of being the most dispassionate, most logically motivated of all the philosophers. His entire morality is based on the idea of suspending personal advantage, and Kant would hold that anything done for the aim of personal advantage is by that definition immoral. Like all moral action must be rationally determined and has to be acted out with a lack of self-interest in mind. And so to call self-interested is to ask what Kant's prejudice was, you know, what his aim was in writing philosophy. Nietzsche's doing something subversive because he's making Kant immoral by Kant's own moral standard, right? But there's also sort of a backhanded compliment in there from the Nietzschean perspective. If we interpret Kant's philosophical project through the will to power, we see very clearly that Kant set a mighty task before himself and could then have the glory, the distinction of saying, this is the most difficult thing anyone's ever done in metaphysical philosophy. It's a backhanded compliment because it makes Kant's motivations immoral, but from Nietzsche's perspective, perhaps it's one of the handful of things that he might actually find laudable in Kant. He took upon himself the Herculean task of shoring up Western metaphysics, of salvaging the transcendent from the shipwreck of revelatory knowledge and bringing it into the sphere of human reasoning. And to explain that briefly, this will be the metaphysical element, Kant attempts to save knowledge by placing limits on it, placing boundaries on it, by clearly um, sort of saying, uh, this is the domain in which human beings can know, and everything outside of this only corresponds to an appearance and not to the world as such, right? Kant was sort of, in the philosophical landscape, he's trying to overcome a number of things. So for one, there's this split between the rationalists and the empiricists, the great epistemological debate that had raged since the Enlightenment began. Kant comes after Descartes, after Spinoza, after Locke and Hume, uh, Hume's of particular importance to Kant, and those all these figures had sort of debated, um, you know, Descartes and Spinoza are more in the rationalist tra uh, tradition, whereas Locke and Hume are empiricists, I think, although um, I'm a little rusty on them, so I, I hope I'm getting this all right. But these figures had debated as to whether or not human knowledge was attained by reason alone, whether what we can know what we know simply by the application of rational principles, or whether knowledge is attained by experience. And that debate seemed intractable in some sense, that the basis of human knowledge therefore seems uncertain, right? Which makes all human knowledge uncertain. If, if we don't have a foundation for it. Furthermore, the question of the basis of human knowledge would never have had to be asked in the first place if the Enlightenment hadn't come along and challenged the received wisdom of the Church as the basis of knowledge. You know, with the Enlightenment comes revolution in the sciences. It brings with it this mechanistic understanding of the universe, where all is just matter in motion, in obeyance of physical laws. This is, for example, the approach of Spinoza, and that would seem to preclude things such as human worth and dignity, and most importantly, freedom. Is there any room for those things in the wake of the scientific worldview of the Enlightenment? Kant famously said that Hume's skepticism is what woke him from his dogmatic slumber. You know, he's 
roused from the state of mind where he simply follows that, that received wisdom. But he doesn't become a Humean, however. He sets out with his work, Critique of Pure Reason, to craft this new epistemology, which addresses the existing dissension in metaphysics, provides a new basis for human reason. And more, most, perhaps most importantly, uh, I guess you could argue about that, he's going to salvage from Christianity the ele- those elements of human worth and freedom and argue that he can articulate the, those principles um, from principles derived from reason alone, right? Um, there, or that are attainable to, to all through human reason. They don't have to simply believe um, in the, you know, the pronouncements of a book, right? The Bible. And so the way Kant achieves this is called his Copernican revolution. And he compares his efforts in this respect to Copernicus. Kant writes, quote, This would be just like the first thoughts of Copernicus, who when he did not make good progress in the explanation of the celestial motions, if he assumed that the entire celestial host revolves around the observer, tried to see if he might not have greater success if he made the observer revolve and left the stars at rest. Now, in metaphysics, we can try in a similar way regarding the intuition of objects. If intuition has to conform to the constitution of the objects, then I do not see how we can know anything of them a priori. But if the object, as an object of the senses, conforms to the constitution of our faculty of intuition, then I can very well represent this possibility to myself. End quote some terms there, a priori knowledge refers to that which we know prior to experience. So the way that Kant achieves this revolution in thought is by sourcing our knowledge of objects to an intuition that we possess. He comes up with the idea of synthetic a priori knowledge. Synthetic, of course, means woven together, right? Like a synthesis. So we have an intuitive knowledge, which is nevertheless a synthesis. It's one of the more controversial ideas in Kant, we did an episode where we discussed this and Nietzsche's reaction to it, which is in episode 16, uh, The Congenital Defect of Philosophers. So if you want to know more about that particular issue, um, you know, you can go there, listen to that episode, or just read about it online, right? There's probably, no, there's definitely better people than me to explain Kantian philosophy. But in any case, Kant writes in the same passage, uh, quote, experience itself is a kind of cognition requiring the understanding whose rule I have to presuppose in myself before any object is given to me, end quote. So in rough outline, this is the great difficult task of Kantian metaphysics that he set before himself, right? To synthesize cognition and experience as both made possible by the same a priori synthetic knowledge. And by these means, all judgments about the world can be made, right? Or could be seen as justified knowledge. But to do this, again, as I mentioned, Kant is saving knowledge by limiting it. Because in the Critique of Pure Reason, he formalizes this split of our world into two worlds, which had existed since the time of Plato and Socrates, and really it's even there in the pre-Platonic philosophers, Um it's implicit in his idea that it is some a priori knowledge that we bring to bear on the world that makes objects comprehensible to us. Kant is saying that the basis for understanding the world 
comes primarily from ourselves and not from anything that is in the objects as such, the phenomena as we perceive them, right? Because really, what we perceive is not objects. We perceive sense information. We have a sight, a sound, a color, a taste, a smell. And then we infer from that some claim about the nature of objects out there. Um, Kant argues that man cannot know the world as such, the noumenon, but only our representations of it, which is the phenomenal world, right? We know the world only through the senses. And so while Kant formally rejects Platonism, there's a sense in which he carries forward that same distinction between essence and appearance, which is key to Platonism. And Kant puts that distinction into the post-scientific language of the Enlightenment. And it's for this reason that Schopenhauer, when he comes along, views Kant as perfectly reconcilable with the ideas of Plato. And that's one of Schopenhauer's projects, is to show, in his view, how Kant and Plato um, were saying the same thing. Well, or had this maybe the same underlying intuitions and expressed themselves in different ways. It's also why Nietzsche, in his very early work in Birth of Tragedy, gives another word that could be seen as a compliment to Kant and even associates Kant with the Dionysian. The following words may be surprising, given how Nietzsche would later regard Kant, but from Birth of Tragedy, section 19, quote, Kant and Schopenhauer made it possible for the spirit in German philosophy to destroy scientific Socratism's complacent delight in existence by establishing its boundaries. How through this delimitation was introduced an infinitely profounder and more serious view of ethical problems and of art, which we may designate as Dionysian wisdom comprised in concepts. End quote. So, it's very fascinating to hear Nietzsche, and you know, I, I'm pretty sure he would probably have repudiated those words later on, describing Kant's philosophy as Dionysianism in concepts, right? I don't think he would, during his, by the time he's writing Ecce Homo, I don't think he would say that. But Kant did attempt to place the transcendent, right? To place morality and human freedom and all of these things within the domain of reason and to treat them as discoverable simply by man's reason. And it might be convenient then to think of him as, you know, someone who kind of like worships human reason as an idol. What Nietzsche's saying, because that's Nietzsche's view of Socrates, right? What he's calling here scientific Socratism. But Nietzsche perceives, and I think correctly, that with Kant, this isn't the case. That in fact, his most important work is the critique of pure reason, which actually places limits on human reason. His concern perhaps coming out of that skepticism of Hume is with really with designating what reason cannot tell us. And so, you know, what are the claims that we can't make about the world is really Kant's most important metaphysical legacy. And so in a sense, that's what allows Kant to make positive claims, right? Uh, because you need those limits in order to, you know, exclusion is the basis of creating of creation when it comes to uh, the conceptual world, right? But from another perspective, this makes Kant in some way a critic of the Enlightenment, right? A critic of all those philosophers who existed up until Kant's own time, in much the same way as Nietzsche is. And really, you could say most philosophers tend to conceive of themselves that way. Um, the main difference between 
say Nietzsche and Kant is that Nietzsche goes much farther than Kant and probably much farther than anyone else before him in what he's willing to criticize. But still, in his early period, we see it here, Nietzsche sees like a strengthening aspect of Kant in the German philosophical project. So, surprising compliments, maybe, if you haven't considered those passages. But Nietzsche's overall assessment of Kant is still not good. Nietzsche would ultimately come to treat Kant as a sort of effigy to abuse and lambast throughout his work. He becomes an object of comedy and scorn. Nietzsche calls him an idiot. He calls him the Chinaman of Konigsberg because his morality is so concerned with selflessness and with the harmony of human beings as a whole that Nietzsche thinks it's closer to the strict collectivism of the East than the Western traditions of thought. Um, now, that's Nietzsche's caricature of Eastern thought, right? But that's, that, that is what he means when he makes this characterization of Kant as Chinese, which I, I, I've seen puzzle some modern readers. He also says, this is one of the funniest things Nietzsche says about Kant. Um, he says that Kant's joke was that he argued for what is in its basic essence simply the conventional morality. He argues for it in terms, however, that the average person would never be able to understand and wouldn't want to read. So it's like Kant is arguing for the morality of the average person in a way that the average person would find totally unpalatable. And Nietzsche calls that Kant's joke, which is kind of Nietzsche's joke on the fact that Kant is, seems fairly humorless, or at least if not totally humorless, very serious with his approach to philosophy. Um, and so all those sort of remarks throughout Nietzsche's work is how he typically talks about Kant. And if we're returning to sort of the initial comparisons that we would make in terms of their underlying value and how they see the world, they are very antipodal. And he doesn't really share those strange sort of interesting points of agreement that he has with Rousseau that he does like he doesn't really share those with Kant. Um, he does have those few points with Rousseau that almost make him a more worthy adversary. Whereas Kant is a worthy adversary because solely because his impact on the German, you know, academic world, and then all of philosophy in general was simply so great, right? He's a behemoth. So Nietzsche, of course, has to engage with him. Now, uh, let's take a look now at Kant's categorical imperative. It's Kant's overarching moral principle, which he derives from reason for how humans ought to act in the world. As to the meaning of the name, which I think is very elucidating, categorical imperative, right? Let's contrast this with a conditional imperative. So what is a conditional imperative? Well, it's something that you should do if you want to achieve a certain outcome. Some examples might be, if your goal is to nourish yourself, then you should eat some food, right? And you can see how the more specific the goal is, the more specific the imperative could get. So if your goal is to nourish yourself on a budget, we might not simply say, you well, you should acquire food, right? Um, if you were telling your friend, like, how do I feed myself on a budget? And he said, acquire food, you would say, what? Because you're he's not adequately addressing the conditions of the imperative that you've laid out, right? And that's sort of the thing, is that a conditional 
imperative is specific. The more and it there's a sort of a spectrum um, based on how specific your intentions or your goal is, right? So your friend might answer, "Well, you should buy some rice and beans and ramen noodles from the store if you want to uh, nourish yourself on a budget," right? I love phrasing things in these philosophical thought experiments that no one would ever say out loud in normal life. But anyway, pretty simple concept, right? It's conditional use of the word should, which is usually really, that's, that's the context that we grammatically always use the word should, right? It's the only context in which it makes sense. Um, Even if the if part of that statement is only implicit, it's usually there. So if you want to get from El Paso to Los Angeles, you should head west on Interstate 10. It doesn't make sense to say that you should simply head west on Interstate 10, no matter what, no matter where you are, or no matter what your goal is. Now, the conditional imperative, the conditional should, right, the conditional ought, it only makes sense if it's nested within that context of where the person is, what their needs are, what their goals are. The only realm where a non-conditional imperative is really used grammatically is in morals. That's where we say should or ought, and we don't attach a corresponding if to the statement. You know, there's no preamble designating that one should only act this way in a certain context or with a certain goal in mind, but rather one should simply act this way, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of their individual motives or their goals or their needs, right? Um, You might have a goal or a need to acquire a lot of money, but um, whether it comes from Kant's categorical imperative or from the Bible saying thou shalt not kill, it is an unconditional imperative that you don't kill people and it doesn't matter if you're in the condition or like, well, I really wanted to shoot that guy and take his wallet. It doesn't, there's no context that applies where it becomes okay to kill people, right? There's no set of conditions. It's an unconditional imperative an absolute imperative, right? Or another synonym for that is a categorical imperative. It's categorical because it's unqualified by any other factors. It's an unconditional imperative on human behavior. And so in a way, the term categorical imperative really, I mean, it it always refers in philosophy to this specific idea in Kant, but the term that Kant coined, really you could just see it as a technical term that could really apply to most of the morality in human thought. Um, You get a little bit of divergence with Greek virtue ethics. You get a little bit of divergence in utilitarianism. But um, all the morality that's based on rules, um, deontological morality, um, it almost always must produce a categorical imperative, right? That's sort of the coin of the realm. And so what is that imperative when it comes to Kant? Quote, Act only according to that maxim, which one can at the same time will to be a universal law, end quote. And so that imperative doesn't outline any specific behavior. This may be the first thing that we might notice. It's not like the Bible's Ten Commandments with rules like thou shalt not kill. Rather, one has to extrapolate those maxims such as thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not commit adultery as the rational consequences of accepting the categorical imperative. Uh, And Kant would hold that those are, like, thou shalt not kill, that is a rational derivation from his categorical imperative that you can only act according to the maxim, which you can at the same time will to be a universal law. 
Um, and so from the categorical imperative, you can derive that murder is not permitted, lying is not permitted, stealing is not permitted. And so in this way, the categorical imperative, Kant's categorical imperative, is like the imperative of imperatives. It's the maxim of maxims. It's the meta-moral principle by which all moral standards can be rationally evaluated. It's the basis of morality. That's what Kant is trying to do here. And so what does it mean to say that killing or stealing or lying is, quote, not permitted? Um, what doesn't permit it, right? Well, in Kant's view, it's our reason. And explaining why that is is a little bit difficult um, because I think or at least it was for me for a long time to really understand this because I think I'm just so temperament temperamentally Nietzschean, maybe. But why is this? Well, again, Kant's project is concerned with the central value of human freedom. And Kant argues that humans are free beings and that we cannot escape from the experience of having free will. We don't approach each of our actions wondering what action we're about to do. But rather, we have the experience of forming an intention and then carrying out an action in accord with that intention. It's, I mean, I would say that's more or less Kant's definition of a free action. It's been called compatibilist in his approach, but the important thing is that the subject forms an intention and the action flows out of that intention. Whether or not the person could also be conceived of in this mechanistic series of causes and effects um, the important thing is that you had the intention and you acted in accord with it. That's freedom to Kant. We're rational beings. We have the capacity to voluntarily act because we can bring multiple potential actions before our minds and conceive of their consequences and determine which intention to form. And so Kant believes that, that the only way to be free is to embrace this decision-making power in some sense. He believes that man wants to be free also. We value our freedom or our sense of freedom. And whatever our beliefs might be on that topic, you know, our intellectualizing about it, we always act in such a way as to maximize our freedom. And you know, we the fact that we continue to bring our will to bear on the world, that we continue to form intentions and act according to them, right? That's proof for Kant that we act as though we're free, even if you know a Spinozist might come along and make a mechanistic argument for why we aren't. And so if you value your freedom, then you should value your ability to act freely. Only Kant says that if you act outside of the categorical imperative, then you're doing the very opposite. That the categorical imperative is in fact the only general rule we can adopt that allows us to be free. Now notice in... I'm trying to make Kant's argument as, um, what would you say, sound as reasonable as possible or be as persuasive as I can possibly make it, which is my habit here, because um, I don't like to bayonet straw men. But I did notice as I was making the argument, I'm like, I'm having to appeal to a conditional imperative in order to argue for the categorical imperative. If you value your freedom, then you should value, then you should follow the categorical imperative, Right. Um, and so it's interesting to think about the fact that I don't know if Kant ever gets to a categorical imperative, that in order to argue and persuade, you have to make conditional imperative statements. And I think that says something very interesting, um, that it would be very plain to someone like Nietzsche, right? 
that um, you have to make those appeals because people aren't just driven by this dispassionate will to truth where um, you can <laughs> convince them that this is the most reasonable way to behave. And furthermore, there are values questions beneath what Kant is saying that he needs you either to share in order for you to be, he needs you to share those values with him in order for you to be persuadable or else he has to persuade you to those values, right? Um, well, in any case, it's kind of a digression. So that probably bears some explaining, right, of why that is. Why is it that the categorical imperative is the only way to be free? Well, for Kant, we need a rule for determining how to act. Randomness, right, acting, as we say, arbitrarily or flippantly, right, acting according to whim, or even we could imagine somebody acting with intentional randomness, right, and just a disconnection from the facts and conditions of what's going on around them. Uh, that, for Kant, is not freedom. It's chaotic, but confusing chaos with freedom is a big mistake in Kant's view. If we act randomly, we're not forming an intention and acting according to our own will, right? One might as well roll a die in determining how they're going to act. And is that freedom? Kant says that's ceding your freedom. You're giving your freedom to that die, right? To a roll of the dice. Um, and so really you're acting according to chance. You're saying, I'll just let chance determine how I act. If we don't have a consistent rule for how we act, we'll end up simply acting according to those chance circumstances or in accord with our passions, right? We'll follow our vices and weaknesses. We will act based on self-interested motives, which are usually short-sighted, right? And they're motivated not by our conscious choice, but by impulse. Um, and so Kant's not so different with his model of, you know, um, what moral human action is in regard to the self as the one that Socrates gives us in the Republic, whereby the only way to be free, which is a similar way that Socrates argues it, and uh, the only way to be a true, truly human being again, similar to how Socrates conceives of it, is to govern oneself according to reason. The impulses, they, when you follow your impulses, it doesn't make you free, right? Because you're acting towards goals which have not been freely chosen by this process of reason. Um, they're not, it's not a consciously formed intention, but in Kant's language, right? It's something animal that grabs hold of the rational man and it in which he has to suspend his better judgment oftentimes. And so we need a rule for how to act in order to be free. And it furthermore must be consciously chosen. Um, as that's another required element of this rule. And finally, it has to be formed by reason and not by like, you know, a rule. It has to be consistent is the other thing because reason is the same, logic's the same at all times and all places. It can't just be shaped by the, um, you know, by chance, by the contextual whims of, you know, uh, the chaotic passions. You have to have an overall guiding principle. And so in light of these criteria, the only rule that one can arrive at in Kant's estimation is the categorical imperative, because it's the only rule that one could follow that would be entirely logically coherent. If one can't form a maxim which is logically coherent at all times, um, that means that in some way or in some circumstances, he would be acting against what his reason tells him, right? 
um, if, if he can form a maxim which is only logically coherent in certain circumstances, well, then all those times when the maxim becomes incoherent, if he still follows that maxim, that means that he must be just motivated by a passion or his self-interest or something like that. And if you do that, that makes you less free. And so the categorical imperative is the one moral rule that one can follow, which is logically consistent, because it's the only rule which is at all times universalizable and applicable to all men. Logic, again, must follow universal rules, which are not subject to the changes and impermanence of human circumstances, but which are the same for all time. Um, and that's another aspect of Kant that Nietzsche would obviously criticize and take serious issue with, that in spite of, maybe this is sort of a counterbalancing observation to Nietzsche's um, remarks in Birth of Tragedy about Kant representing the Dionysian in concepts, is even though he's willing to sort of delimit off the boundaries of reason, he still has this estimation of reason and the human in intellect as something beyond the realm of causality and above the physiology and the emotions and all of these things that Nietzsche thinks are inseparable from our process of reasoning is one way. That's really only one aspect of how he might critique this, but I'm sure if you've been, if you're an avid listener to the podcast, you probably can form these arguments yourself at this point. So importantly, the categorical imperative is not the golden rule. Um, and I, I just, feel I should bring this up because it's still a misconception get, that kind of goes around. The golden rule <clears throat> that states that we should treat others how they want to be, or how we would want to be treated, right? That may sound similar on, on a first pass, but that's not actually rooted in logical universalism. It's rooted in a sort of universalism of desires, right? How we would like to be treated, how we would want to be treated. It appeals to the pleasure principle, therefore, which Kant doesn't really believe we can derive, derive our morality from. If someone is a masochist and would like to be treated in an abusive way, that's no argument for going around abusing people. Um, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, right? But this happens all the time in social life where people do things that they consider to be no big deal, but what you would considered to be a huge slight, right? And that's a source of conflict. So for example, um, you know, you, you might think that uh, it's totally normal to arrive late to every meeting or engagement that you commit to. And thus, it might not seem like any offense to you um, when somebody arrives late for a party at your house, right? But um, when you arrive late for a party at the house of someone who really values punctuality, they might Get, end up getting upset, right? And which which of the two is correct? Well, neither of them, because they're basing their attitude to the world on the golden rule, on how they'd like to be treated, which is basically just their subjective valuation, right? And since everyone would like to be treated in different ways, um, you can't actually, it's not a principle that you can logically universalize in the same way. Um. And so Kant says we have to act according to maxims, which we can will to be universal laws. What he means, we have to consider whether our actions depend on any principles, which, if made universal, would logically undermine the very basis of that action. That may sound somewhat abstract, so I'll give you the typical example 
um, that as Kant gives it, promising, right? Or really it's lending. Um, but I guess he talks about both. You know, I borrow $20 from you and promise to pay you back next Wednesday, but I don't pay you back on Wednesday. I, I leave your texts on red and you don't hear from me all week. In fact, I never even intended to pay you back on Wednesday or to pay. I, I'm not, I don't intend to pay you back at all, right? I borrowed money from you entirely based on a false promise that I made. Now, let's say that we universalized my bad intention of false promising or of borrowing money without the intention of paying it back, right? Let's say that everyone acted according to my own larcenous intentions. If that were the case, we wouldn't even be able to imagine that institutions of lending would exist, right? Such a world where everyone is always, all their promises to pay people back are always false. You can't imagine that a bank could exist in such a world, right? We'd also imagine that anytime someone asked to borrow something from someone else, just on a personal level, um, in such a world, right, where everyone makes false promises, no one would have any trust that a borrowed item would ever be returned. And so they would not even lend things out to their family and friends. And so the entire human activity of promising, the entire human activity of lending, these would cease to exist. By acting according to a maxim that's not universalizable, I'm therefore acting irrationally, which is to say acting unfreely, right? That's the key thing, because what I'm doing is undermining the very premise by which I act. My false promise only works if people believe in promising and have trust in one another according to the practice of honoring one's promises. So that means I both will that um, the institution of promise, of promising, should exist, and I'm simultaneously acting in such a way that undermines its existence. And so my action requires a premise that it denies through the very act. It's a logical contradiction of an act. And therefore, it's not an expression of my freedom. It can't be. But of my being enslaved, to example, for my greed, being enslaved to my greed, excuse me, or being enslaved to some sort of impulse to take advantage of someone or whatever the case may be, right? Because if I'm acting incoherently and logic isn't the driving force, then I'm just being a slave to an impulse. Another formulation of the categorical imperative, um, it's put a slightly different way, which I think brings out another aspect of it. There's really, there's three main ways you can do it, but this is the only other one we'll talk about, is that the categorical imperative can be summarized by saying, we must treat every single human being um, as an ends and not a means. We find that as demanded by the categorical imperative, in every case where we attempt to use another human being as a mere means to an end, the action ends up being illogical. It's never universalizable to all human actions. Um, and I think you can kind of figure out all the steps of why you would get there, right? Um, and so exploiting and harming and taking advantage of others all of these actions refute themselves. The universalist morality of Kant is therefore an antithesis in terms of the underlying principles to Nietzsche's um, more descriptive view of how life behaves uh, through will to power, that it is essentially exploitative and domineering. Kant might even actually agree with Nietzsche, by the way, in terms of his assessment, in terms of the descriptive assessment, for Kant also sees that man 
falls far astray of this goal, right? Of this moral goal. But where Nietzsche believes that the irrational aspects of the human, you know, our drives, our passions, he sees that as something that constitute the human, right? That's what Nietzsche sees. Um, but Kant, on the other hand, he thinks, in again, in a camp with Plato, that what constitutes us is our intellect. He sees our drives as something to be overcome, right? And in favor of a more enlightened way of life, no pun intended. And so from this Kantian understanding of morality that we've discussed, there flows a set of political ideas that I would say are a necessary consequence of Kant's moral ideas. You could, um, I think to Kant's credit, I think he's correct in saying you could probably derive what the ideal politics would look like for Kant, even if Kant had never written this. The categorical imperative is the ultimate moral rule, right? The meta-moral idea by which all humanity must be subject uh, just in order for humanity to be free. And remember, that's what Kant insists that we all value as revealed in our actions, even if we intellectually oppose the idea. We want freedom. That being the case, the political structure would therefore be required to reflect that same moral reality that every human being is an ends and not a means, and that the moral goal of mankind is freedom, and that this freedom is found in constraint. We can see, then, how Rousseau's influence affects Kant's politics and his morals in a very subtle way, actually, because Rousseau is also concerned with synthesizing our need for freedom with the need for cooperation to place the individual's freedom into a relationship with the collective such that one doesn't undermine the other. And he settles on the idea of the general will, the emergence of a shared will which supersedes the concerns of any one individual. But because this general will is, in the deepest sense, the most beneficial thing for the individual, right? Like from the ultimate, not ultimate, but from the bird's eye view, from the broader perspective, if this, you know, through direct participation and discussion, if the individuals could be made to see this, they'll see that when enacted, every individual will be able to best realize their individual will through the general will, right? And so there's a similarity in Kant that's very important, that we secure our freedom by submitting to the overarching moral imperative to submitting to something to which all are sort of bound in some sense, bound together. And this pattern is reflected in his politics as well. We secure our political freedom, our individual rights, by submitting to a sovereign authority. And that sovereign authority has a duty that corresponds to this to protect those rights. And that means that if a conflict of interest arises in which our individual will is at variance with the laws of the just state, we must voluntarily subordinate ourselves to that law. That logically, we will see that our freedom is only secured if such a respect for the law is our maxim. And that even if we might gain advantage in one circumstance by breaking the law, that this is actually an unfree act on our part. It's antithetical to our freedom for the same reason that it's antithetical to human freedom to violate the categorical imperative. If someone decides to steal and break the law, one would be undermining the freedom that's sort of assured to all, the freedom to enjoy and possess the fruits of our own labor, right? 
If everyone broke that law, then property could not exist. No one would feel secure and enjoying what they've rightfully earned. And so you wouldn't, in that world, you wouldn't even be able to feel secure in the property that you've stolen. And so your lawless action, in some sense, um, it's, it, it applies, you can't, could apply that same formula of seeing the logical incoherency of the action and how that undermines our freedom. It's just that he's simply taken it from the moral realm, placed it into the political realm. So in the most general sense, that is the way you can understand Kant's politics. Now, something interesting, I guess, is that Kant's state is based on this same principle of universalism. And so all the rights which the state is bound to protect, they're negative rights. Or, you know, all of our moral duties under the categorical imperative are negative duties. In other words, we don't have positive duties to other beings, whereby we would have to provide certain things for them. Um, we simply have not to transgress against their freedom, right? But the state's role as the protector of rights and the fact that only the state can provide this, um, it means we do actually have one positive moral duty, which is to join the state, to voluntarily choose to obey the laws of a just state and support the state in this function. But then what's reflected in the state is much like in Kant's categorical imperative, simply a respect, simply a negative duty towards the citizens to make sure their rights are respected, right? Kant, therefore, differs from Hobbes and that the sovereign authority is not above the law, so to speak. The, the sovereign authority is as much bound by moral duty as the citizens are. And he differs from Rousseau as well and that Kant doesn't regret the creation of the state uh, at all. He does not regret the advancement of civilization. Um these are positive developments for him. In spite of whatever flaws or problems they, might, they may have had, um, all of those are due to pesky human nature, right? That's people behaving immorally or irrationally. You know, it's, it, but Kant does not believe, as Rousseau does, you know, man is born free but is everywhere in chains. I mean, because for one, he doesn't think that civilization or the state has put us in chains. And secondly, he doesn't, necessarily think that we're born free right or that we always are like you you reason is something you have to be educated into and so we in some sense have to learn to be free um i don't know if kant ever advanced the argument in exactly those terms but that's at least how i see it um and may or maybe even another way we could take that rousseauian aphorism and turn it on its head only in chains do men find their freedom right and Kant would never phrase it that way, but we might say that in the limitations provided by the law or by the intention to always act in a logically coherent manner, only there do we find that we're actually making a rational choice. And so the primitive man cannot be freer. He, he can only be freer in the sense of a, a coarse, vulgar, you know, very base understanding of freedom, which Kant would hold as actually like a false idea of free, freedom, right? Um, Kant would say that the primitive man, he lives in a state where he's threatened at all sides by, you know, any number, all the other human beings on earth, basically, right. Uh, become his enemy. Those who, because they're, 
he's surrounded by those whose actions are not constrained by any guiding moral principle or any sovereign authority. And so nothing could be more oppressive than that, right? Kant writes, uh, for example, in the second section of his essay, Perpetual Peace, quote, we look with profound contempt upon the way in which savages cling to their lawless freedom. They would rather engage in incessant strife than submit to a legal constraint which they might impose upon themselves, for they prefer the freedom of folly to the freedom of reason. We regard this as barbarism and the debasement of humanity. End quote. And so, in modern civilization, right, man's dawning enlightenment has made it possible that a man or woman can walk the street, you know, in Kant's time in Konigsberg, right, and probably be relatively assured they aren't going to be waylaid and robbed and assaulted or kidnapped or raped or killed, right? Um, obviously, these things still happen even today, and they didn't have as good you know, criminology technology as we have today. So it's probably a little more common. Um, you know, here's my Steven Pinker moment, even though I completely revile Steven Pinker. I mean, he's right in terms of your chances of getting murdered have gone down. That is a fact. Um, and I guess you could say, could someone living on the open steps of Mongolia in the 1200s say the same thing? They can just walk about and have no worry about any of these things happening to them? Probably not, right? And so, now, for the question of what enlightenment means, because um, before we get into the essay of Perpetual Peace in more detail, I realize I've been using that term enlightenment a lot. And thankfully, Kant has an essay entitled, What is Enlightenment? Um, and so, I think that's a good accompaniment to the philosophical sketch of perpetual peace. Kant defines his use of the term enlightenment to mean, quote, man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity, end quote. And he defines immaturity as, quote, the inability to use one's understanding without the guidance of others, end quote. In other words, people cede their authority as free beings to others. They cede the use of their own minds um, in favor of received wisdom. Um, they allow popular ideas or unquestionable dogma um, to guide their actions and employ their own thoughts as little as possible. And perhaps in the past, man didn't yet possess the capacity to strive for maturity. But now, you know, in the centuries surrounding Kant's life, um, this the immaturity that we experience is now self-imposed, right? Anyone can choose to act in accord with reason. It's simply a matter of committing their intention to do so. The overall thrust of Kant's argument in What is Enlightenment is a call to honor free expression of ideas. He distinguishes between the private and public spheres in this respect, and he makes it plain, in our private individual roles in society, our duty may not always be to challenge the received wisdom, right? The military officer ought not question the orders of his superiors. The priest, he has to follow the guiding doctrines of his church and what he preaches from the pulpit. The academic has to accord with the standards set by his university. But in their public roles, 
and, and the fact that they're also all public citizens, right? It's the duty of every man to use his reason in order to determine where and how their given institution is in some way lacking or not fulfilling its duty, right, to its moral duty um, or its political duty. And so the military man is obliged to privately obey, but publicly he could bring his arguments forth as to why the military doctrine is lacking in some way or another or incorrect in some way or another. The priest has to obey his bishop, but he's obliged to publish his critique of church doctrine, whether or not, you know, his bishop likes that he's doing that. But if the theology is not theologically sound, you know, notice I use the term obliged. Kant does see this as an obligation, and almost everything with Kant is an obligation, right? And it's part of why um, I think people of a certain temperament like myself, find Kant so distasteful, right? Um, an indelicacy, we might say. Um, and so, you know, so on and so forth. The central principle that Kant is putting forward here, argue all you want, but obey, is what he says. Um, and so for this free expression to be useful, it has to be employed by a literate public. That's another thing we should point out. And so there's an implicit value to educating the populace. So there's a a tinge in this essay of the state as tutelary civilization as this educational force on mankind that brings forward the possibility of moral development. Um, but uh, in one of the avenues that Kant sees this going is through the, the use of public reason, right? That's a good way to summarize it. Okay. Another significance of this passage is that Kant is developing the idea that Habermas would later call the public square. He's treating free expression as a necessary aspect of any free society. And indeed, he argues, no institution should see free expression as a threat to itself. So long as men understand that their free expression is not a reason for shirking their duties, if man's reason is allowed to freely probe and explore the institutions and to criticize the practices and beliefs of the time, right? then reason will improve upon those things. And so Kant writes, quote, the head of state who favors freedom in the arts and sciences realizes that there is no danger even to his legislation if he allows his subjects to make public use of their own reason and to put before the public their thoughts on better ways of drawing up laws, even if this entails forthright criticism of the current legislation, end quote. Kant suggests we have a modern example of such a figure, or contemporaneous example, we should say, in Frederick II, also called Frederick the Great. Uh, he calls the 18th century the century of Frederick. And here we find it an odd parallel between Nietzsche and Kant in that both men admired uh, the same political figure. Now, Kant argues that if our doctrines are received as unchangeable, if we cling to tradition, without allowing the free use of reason, this will rob something of mankind. It will rob us of the ability to progress. And he argues that this is what the development of reason has given us, the ability to continue to press forward into a more perfect society. And so if we don't allow the public use of reason, that's what is taken away. Kant writes, quote, should a society of clergymen for example, an ecclesiastical synod 
or a venerable presbytery, as the Dutch call it, be entitled to commit itself by oath to a certain unalterable set of doctrines, in order to secure for all time a constant guardianship over each of its members and through them over all the people? I reply that this is quite impossible. A contract of this kind, concluded with a view to preventing all further enlightenment of mankind forever, is absolutely null and void. One age cannot enter into an alliance on oath to put the next, next age in a position where it would be impossible for it to extend and correct its knowledge, particularly on such important matters, or to make any progress whatsoever in enlightenment. This would be a crime against human nature, whose original destiny lies precisely in progress. End quote. Kant says he uses the example of religion because it falls least under the control of the state, and furthermore that man is perhaps most immature when it comes to religious matters. He writes, uh, again implicitly speaking of Frederick, that, quote, a prince who does not regard it as beneath him to say that he considers it his duty in religious matters, not to prescribe anything to his people, but to allow them complete freedom. A prince who thus declines even to accept the presumptuous title of tolerant is himself enlightened. He deserves to be praised by a grateful present and posterity as the man who first liberated mankind from immaturity. End quote. In ages past, it, you know, it was customary for the medieval bondsman to be bound to the religion of his feudal lord. And when the Protestant split from the church happened, um, this applied even then, right? There were Europeans encultured to the idea for many centuries of simply receiving the religious doctrine of their betters, meaning that in the deepest matters, the most serious matters of the human heart, um, what Kant calls maturity in this essay, right? That's where it would have been most needed, perhaps. That's where people were least apt to have it, right? The prince who gives his people nothing in terms of spiritual guidance or gives them nothing in terms of a demand that they believe something one way or the other, it, he's consequently allowing them to figure it out for themselves. And therefore, he is helping to liberate the people from immaturity. He's showing them the path forward to their own self-enlightenment. Kant doesn't believe, however, that he and his contemporaries lived in what he calls a, quote, enlightened age. He says we do not live in an enlightened age. He does say that it's an age of enlightenment. And so the distinction he's making is that enlightenment, enlightenment is now possible, but that we're far from having become enlightened. The project has been made clear. You know, the task of mankind has been brought into the light of reason, but it has not been achieved. And so this is a politics of progress and a politics of optimism. And Kant is an early adopter of one of the most, what you'd say, like the most late arriving values of humanity, which nevertheless seem to be of critical importance to us today. Kant is an advocate for freedom of speech, or more broadly for freedom of thought and freedom of expression. And at the, the time, these were very radical notions. Um, again, it's like, some of the things he argues almost seem too mundane to even be worth saying in modern times, but you have to really put yourself in the mindset of an 18th century person who actually had to make these arguments because 
People didn't believe those arguments. They were not widely held, right? Um, and, you know, so again, to tie this back to the metaphysical and moral aims of Kant, by allowing free thought, Kant believes we would take a step to honor human dignity and in a very forward rebuke to the mechanistic approach to life, he says that this is to go beyond treating people as mere machines. It's the phrasing he uses in the essay to treat them with respect instead as reasoning beings. Now, um, let's, we'll take a little bit of a closer eye to Kant's essay, Perpetual Peace. Now, uh, he actually opens the essay with a bit of a, it's kind of a funny remark, actually. I'll, I'll give him this one. He says that he once saw the phrase perpetual peace shown on the signboard of a Dutch inn along with the picture of a graveyard. That, you know, in the Christian way of thinking, perpetual peace is something one attains in the grave when one's soul is returned to God, right? And so that's probably not too far off from how a Nietzschean might criticize the concept concept of uh, perpetual peace, right? It's an ideal for life that in no way resembles what the natural world is actually like. And therefore, in order to realize this ideal, you have to cast it off into another world. And so it can only exist in the abstract and the Christian imagination. And then since it's then associated with the afterlife, that has all sorts of horrible devaluing effects on life. But in any case, uh, Kant's uh, leading with this remark, I can only see as like, it's almost like a good faith criticism of his own position. Um, he's like disarming, uh, you know, the people who would immediately reflexively sort of have a knee-jerk reaction to um, the idea of perpetual peace. And sort of Kant's saying like, look, I know this is what, what a lot of people probably think of this concept. He's painfully aware of the fact that perpetual peace has long been thought of in these terms as an unrealistic idea. And he also makes a funny remark that says the heads of state tend to regard all theories, um, all the work of the political theorists in general in the same fashion, right? That in the difference between theory and practice, um, this is starkly apparent in the political sphere, this difference, because the practitioners of politics, the rulers, right? Um, generally, they have a downright scorn for the theorists. But in the spirit of bringing his public criticism into the open, right? Um, Kant therefore begs the ruler who might read this essay not to hold it against him. Uh, he, he basically says, yeah, um, you're right. All the political theorists are being ridiculous. So there's no need to see this as a threat to your rule. I'm just another theorist and Kant, you know, he somewhat coyly makes this argument. You don't need to pay any heed to me. Um, now Kant gives a number of preliminary prescriptions that he believes would create the situation in which a perpetual peace could arise. I'm not going to go through all of them um, exhaustively, but just for a couple examples, he suggests the standing armies of nations should be abolished. He says that states also should not interfere in the constitutions or internal affairs of other states, so long as those other states are not taking measures to create the conditions for a future war. And no state shall be owned by another state as its property. And, you know, the, the reasons for the conditions, the thing that sort of unifies all these like six prescriptions he gives, um, 
I mean, I think in some sense it goes without saying, right? So if a state is treated as the property of another state, it will not be in a relationship where its freedom is being respected. And since that is generally immoral, I mean, for one, it's justifiably, it's justifiable to call it immoral of the, the one state doing that. But just from like a, what would you say, a prag, pragmatic concerns, right? You would say that you would expect the colonized state to resent this servile relationship. Um, and the Kant's point in this is it's a way of avoiding, I guess, a misconception that you could obtain this perpetual peace by placing other states in a deferential or servile relationship to one central strong imperial power, um, because that will always be the basis for future hostility. And so Kant's preliminary prescriptions here are designed to prevent just that, that you have to achieve this perpetual peace. Um, you should take all of these steps because, you know, another thing, right? Like where he says the standing army needs to be abolished. Part of the wisdom that was sort of around at that time, I mean, you see it in Machiavelli, right? It's like um, you, you having a well-trained uh good standing army, you might well see as a means of promoting peace, you know, a good, well-trained, uh, like when Machiavelli talks about the German free states of the Holy Roman empire, that they, um, you know, they, they were ruled by these barons who had strong, well-trained militias. They were well supplied and they had good fortifications and they had stocks so they could outlast a siege. And so having military readiness is how they achieve peace because nobody ever wanted to attack these imperial free cities because you won't win, right? They can endure your siege. So Kant's attacking that view, though, like maybe that would work for preventing a war here or there, but you will not achieve a perpetual peace that way. And so it's very interesting. He's showing ways in which certain political or geopolitical actions might apparently create the situation for peace, but they will create the seeds for war later. Um, okay, so I should say at this point, too, I, did, I mean, maybe it goes without saying again, but given the implications of Kant's moral philosophy, I think I used the term suggestions at one point, or said Kant suggests um, these measures, I don't think are conditional <laughs> given, you know, even given the hedging at the beginning that this is, he's just a silly political theorist. Don't mind me. I think if we take his philosophy seriously and look at his statements in light of that, Kant's not saying, if you want perpetual peace, do these things. This is the key point. He's saying the moral imperative for all of us, if we wish to act freely, right? Which means to act logically, which means to respect every other human being as an ends. To do this, we will necessarily have to condemn things like war, slavery, forced submission of smaller states to larger ones, and so on. Which means, following from that, it's your moral duty to aim at a perpetual peace. And that, therefore, these prescriptions are not really suggestions. It's your moral duty, in some sense, to support the movement of your state toward a more peaceful orientation or towards an orientation that will create the perpetual peace. 
to create the conditions in which it can be attained, which means that you, if you are a Kantian, you have to acquiesce to the premise that the political entity in which you live should disarm. Doesn't mean you have to believe they should disarm right now, (laughs) immediately. It does mean, though, that you have to have that as your final aim. You should be trying to create the conditions in which that would happen. And so Kant writes, sounding here like the polar opposite of Nietzsche, quote, reason as the highest legislative moral power absolutely condemns war as a test of rights and sets up peace as the immediate duty, end quote. Now, part of the problem with perpetual peace is that mankind only really knows peace under the auspices of a state. As Kant opens the second section of the essay, quote, the state of peace among men living together is not the same as the state of nature, which is rather a state of war. For if it does not involve active hostilities, it involves a constant threat of their breaking out. End quote. Hobbes had also called the state of nature the state of war, and Kant sees it in much the same fashion. It's not enough to say that warfare, you know, isn't necessarily going on at all times in the state of nature. It's that man has no guarantee that future hostilities won't arise and in some way is oppressed by the threat of them. It impinges on our freedom if you have to constantly take measures for your own security or for your family. Um, You can never be assured that those measures will be enough either. So you will constantly live in fear, which will then affect your decision-making Um, it'll affect the kinds of intentions that you're able to rationally form and pursue, which will mean you're being kept from being a totally free being, right? And so a state of peace can only occur within that auspices of a sovereign authority. Um, and the state of peace is only going to occur in that just or lawful state as Kant would call it. And so men can't enjoy this is, maybe this is the way to put it. You can't have peace by happenstance. Uh, or I could put it even more forcefully by, than that. Peace is not the absence of war for Kant. It is actively created by the power of states. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's the, the power of state is, states is the thing that can create it. They don't necessarily create it. Um, now, that leads to a problem because one could achieve a local peace within a given state, but then that makes international peace a very funny thing, which is really the peace that in the time in Europe, you know, that Kant's writing that we're way more concerned with, right? We've pretty much settled (laughs) the, as we talked about, right? You can walk about in Konigsberg in Kant's time and it's not a state of war, right? Um, But on the international level, well, nations in respect to one another, they have not exited the state of nature. Kant makes this argument. With them, within the states, a peace exists, right? But with one another, nations exist in the same relationship that two tribes might find themselves in prior to any organized sovereign authority. There may not be open war, but they're living under this constant threat of hostilities. Um, 
you know, the hostilities may not be here today, they could arise tomorrow. And especially if your neighbor has a standing military just over the border, um, you might perceive that as a threat, and then that could lead you to having to maintain a military. So Kant writes that, quote, The depravity of human nature is displayed without disguise in the unrestricted relations which obtain between the various nations, end quote. So if we're following the pattern with Kant, to have freedom, peace-like freedom is a positive force. It's something that actually has to be created and brought into the world. And you attain this by having restraint. The nation-state provides this restraint within itself, but nation-states are not restrained with how they interact with one another which means in that Kant, that's always going to be a bad thing, right? Because without that restraint, uh, without those duties or rules to govern international relations, there's no possibility for morality. There's no possibility for this grand political project for flows forth from the principles as he's established them with his morality. So Kant therefore prescribes that what has to be created is a federated system of nation states. He emphasizes this is not a world government. It's not one government that rules over all the people. Um, Kant sort of argues that a nation is not something that can simply be imposed without any material context from, you know, as if from above, right? As if the state were a, a mere abstraction or something. He, he compares the state to being like a rooted tree rather than it's not something you can just take a snipping of and recreate elsewhere. Um, I don't know. It's a surprisingly based aspect of Kant um, that he sees world government as a folly because states grow up sort of naturally, that they're historically and geographically rooted. You can't make one up out of thin air. I would have maybe expected Kant to think that you could create a state out of thin air because if the state is just a, what would you say? The state. I could imagine him conceiving of the state as a purely abstract thing right? Uh, in terms of it's a, it's the realm of reason, right? Which um, can be imposed on any man. So why I'm not, I guess I am surprised because I don't see a direct argument for why you couldn't have a world government that isn't just a little bit hand wavy, right? But whatever, I mean, Kant makes a bad argument or a lacking argument for something I would actually agree with. Um, it's just, so what he imagines instead is a sort of global federation, uh, which would be expansive in its character, by the way, right? It has to, again, it's its duty of this global federation to expand to as many great powers as it could. So it might begin as like an alliance or a pact of mutual defense between, you know, a small handful of countries, but that they would expand this federated system to as many states as possible. And all states within this federated system agree to cease all warfare or hostilities with one another. And obviously the benefit of this is that the oath would sort of be backed by the force of every other member of the group. And so it's almost like a state of states. And in terms of the elegance of the structure there, Kant sort of insisting, well, we don't just all mold or blend them together into one government. Um, it's like he sees the problem of within the states, you have um, peace in relation to each other. We have the state of nature still impose a state upon the states. doesn't mean blending them all together. 
It means putting them in much the same relationship that we uh, citizens find ourselves in relationship to our own nation states, right? So Kant writes, quote, Each nation, for the sake of its own security, can and ought to demand of the others that they should enter along with it into a constitution similar to a civil one within which the rights of each could be secured, end quote. Again, you know, people can claim that Kant was philosophically uninteresting here, um, but what does his vision of a federated system of nations sound like? Does that resemble anything today? This federated system of nations that's opposed to warfare between its members, right? Uh, some people have said the UN, right? I think it really resembles the European Union, actually, much more. You know, you might say the UN possesses too little power to actually prevent war between its members, right? Or really do much of anything to influence international players beyond being... The UN is really just a forum for for discussion, right? And so maybe it approximates what Kant was thinking of in some form, but it's not actually like member states of the UN... Of the UN um, it, it hasn't actually prevented fighting between the members because every country on earth is in the UN and guess what? There's still wars. So it didn't really work, but the EU, um, you know, when was the last time two EU countries fought each other? It hasn't happened. Right. And so you could say maybe on the other side of that spectrum, the EU tends to do too much in some cases to where it's, Individual member states sometimes complain of it overwhelming their national or economic sovereignty. Um, so to where it, it almost becomes like a world government, right? Not a world government, but a European government. And so the kinks are not worked out as to how to achieve that perfect balance that Kant seems to be looking for, where it completely respects the sovereignty of the members, but totally prevents war between them. Um and so, and, you know, maybe here would be where you could introduce another critique. Maybe the reason for that is that it's not possible, that you would you uh, can't cr actually move up another level. Um, like, the state always has to be the monopoly on violence, and you can't impose a monopoly on violence above <laughs> all of the individual units that all think they have their own monopoly on violence, if that makes sense. The only way to do that would be to take that monopoly and violence away from them invested in one world state. And once you have that power, those other states become mere formalities, right? Or they're, it's like the emperor being the king of kings or the, the relationship of feudal lords to the king of France. They don't, the, the individual states don't actually have sovereignty at that point. Um, kind of a digression, I guess. But anyway, the important point is that the thing that we've aimed for, at least in the West, and to some extent even worldwide, is a kind of system that at least approximates what Kant is describing here. So Kant, again, it's more bolstering for my argument that he's actually very relevant to read. But furthermore, he writes that within this international rule of law, you know, nations begin to disband their armies. Um, and then we might, you know, another example is actually NATO, um, which as we speak, right, they're mounting a collective defense to prevent a hostile foreign power who doesn't believe in the European vision of perpetual peace and human rights and so on, right? They're, they're mounting a collective defense to prevent them from making inroads into Eastern Europe. 
So they still maintain a ability for collective capacity for military force, which Kant says that they should, right? Until you get the whole world in your perpetual peace plan, um, your perpetual peace alliance will have to still be able to defend itself. But it's not as if Spain and France are doing, you know, threatening military drills on each other's border in the meanwhile, right? Um, if, if they're doing drills on each other's border, they're probably joint drills, right? Within this international coalition, um, there you don't, again, NATO or the EU, I think is a very good example because you don't see this, um, it even seems like just so out of the realm of possibility for something like a war between Spain and France, right? Like that would be crazy. Um, that was not true a couple hundred years ago, right? Now, Kant also says that there needs to be a law of universal hospitality. And that means, as he puts it, the right of the stranger not to be treated with hostility when visiting another territory in this coalition. They don't have to let you in, he says. But if they do, they can't mistreat you. And that, that doesn't mean you get to claim the right of guest and be extended like amenities and stuff, like somebody staying at the inn. They don't owe you anything, right? Kant is simply saying that once again, we have a universal moral duty, which is a negative duty. The duty is simply not to harm or otherwise molest anyone who passes through our territory. And so that's roughly the picture of his federated alliance for bringing forth a perpetual peace. And actually, there's a really great line about, again, that pattern of how submitting to some constraint is a means of advancing, um, you know, one's freedom, right? Um, well, it, the line, what it actually is, he says, the very state that sort of provides this, this ability to us to find that restraint and thus find freedom, these states, they tend to, quote, see its own majesty precisely in not having to submit to any external legal constraint, end quote. And so Kant's sort of categorical imperative-esque political argument that he would pose towards the rulers of states who don't want to submit to such a constraint is that this is a contradiction, right? That these states all want to be free and sovereign? Well, they're not actually acting freely. They're not actually maximizing their own sovereignty, right? Um they have to rec because they're not they're not maximizing their own freedom and sovereignty because they're choosing to live in a state of nature, and for exactly the same reason that he scorns the savage for doing that, Kant would scorn the state that chooses to just continue in this perpetual struggle rather than to submit to some um, federated authority. Um, in my uh, view, perhaps the most interesting aspect of Kant's political philosophy, though, is that. It's the first article he gives in the second section of the essay where he lays out the nature of what this perpetual peace is. Um, and he says all the governments involved have to be republics. This is the way to ensure their cooper cooperation with the regime of peace, right? Um, but what Kant means by a republic is very different from how, uh, say, Machiavelli uses the term. Machiavelli basically sees a republic as a form of government that sort of it respects the manifestations of the three different types of power in society, right? Um, that which have been recognized at all times: monarchy, oligarchy, and democracy. It's the power of one, the power of the few, or the power of the many. 
Rather than basing your form of government on any one of these sources of power, the Republic incorporates all three, so achieves a sort of balance which allows it to endure with maximum liberty for the people for the longest time, which is why Machiavelli likes republics. Kant does not see the republic that way. He gives a somewhat uh, unusual conception of what a republic is, actually. He says that a republic could be either a monarchy or an oligarchy or a democracy. It could take any of those three forms in principle. What a republic is for Kant is a system of government whereby the executive is separated from the legislative. So the person who makes the laws must be separate from the enforcement of laws. This means that if a monarchy is so arranged such that the king, you know, the legislator, if he entrusts the function of executing the law to um, other individuals, to Kant, that is a republic. And so contrary to the modern associations we would make, Kant actually says that the least likely republic to arise is a democratic one, because the only means of achieving it is violent revolution. And as we know, all, all the excesses of that, right? Um, and the public isn't always educated or literate or moderate in the kind of uh, governance that they would seek. And so Kant writes the following, quote, any form of government which is not representative is essentially an anomaly because one and the same person cannot at the same time be the legislator and executor of his own will, just as the general proposition in logical reasoning cannot at the same time be a secondary proposition subsume, subsuming the particular within the general, end quote. I, I understand the analogy Kant is drawing. I must admit, I don't really see the argument for why he thinks that's the case. The best way I, I could maybe explain it is that Kant demands a representative power structure because it follows that pattern of the individual yielding his individual will, his individual interest to the general, to, to the universal principle, right, of reason. So the law, insofar as it is to be created in line with reason, demands that it be created by an individual who understands themselves not to be the executor of that will. There has to be a sense of separation so that those who represent the people understand themselves as servants of a higher duty, right? Rather than simply pursuing the political policy that benefits themselves. And notice I didn't say servants of the people. That's maybe a way that we would differ from Kant's political conception today. Um, that he would say, no, the important thing is that the ruler associates himself with this moral duty. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of understand what he's saying here. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It's a very unusual way to, I don't know if I'm sold on that as defining what a Republic is. And I don't know if that actually works in practice. Um, I mean, you know, Montesquieu famously argued for the separation of powers is a very important thing in maintaining a Republic. Um, I think, I think it was to Maestre who made the argument that, um, Montesquieu's whole conception of this doesn't really work. Um, and oh man, this episode is really running long, so we're not going to get into that here. Um, so Kant writes, quote, even if autocracy and aristocracy are always defective in as much as they leave uh, room for a despotic form of government, it is at least possible that they will be associated with a form of government which accords with the spirit of a representative system. Thus, 
Frederick II at least said that he was merely the highest servant of the state, end quote. So um, a representative system is best created in autocracy of all places. And thus the strange claim, the best republic is likely, a, it seems to be some sort of constitutional monarchy. Some of this perhaps flows from his admiration for Frederick, which is on display throughout his political writings, might also see the influence of Rousseau yet again in his idea of the legislator, the interpreter and the embodiment of the general will, right? The irony, of course, is that Kant doesn't see the just republic as emerging from that direct democratic participation, though. If the people are all legislators and all executors of their own will, they'll be unable to distinguish between their own interests, which they may wish to just achieve through the state, and the sort of duty to which the state is bound. They'll be unable to make that um, understanding that the government isn't there to serve the people. It's there to serve and just sort of serve the people. I mean, I guess you could say it is in treating all the people as ends, right? But not to serve the people and just like, well, give the people what they want, right? That's not what Kant would argue for at all. He would say that fundamentally is not a republic if all the people are in charge and they're just voting themselves whatever it is that they want. I mean, so for Kant, a republic then is not really a form of government. A republic is a classification that exists wherever a given form of government governs according to the principles of reason. For Kant, to do so requires this representative system. And the fact that he thinks democracy is of third-rate attractiveness, it, it's a major divergence from the modern assessment in the world of liter liberalism of democracy as necessarily the best form of government. Um, and it's so associated with liberalism that to pair the two and say liberal democracy is like the most natural association in the world for us. But if we consider it in light of what a republic means to Kant, we may find, again, that in some sense we do find the modern world in agreement with him. I would just point to the it, the non-majoritarian uh regulatory bodies of the European Union, to use them as an example again, which they purport to represent the best interest of the people, the best governance in line with reason, while being set above democratic oversight. The key aspect of a republic that makes it the necessary path for any form of government to aspire to is its conformity to its duty and the moral duty to protect the rights and freedoms of its populace. And so, in essence, the political manifestation of the categorical imperative. That is what makes the political order just, and that is the political order that Kant thinks we all must necessarily attempt to create. And there are even ways in which he was prescient, and we have done that. Um, and so we'll conclude here. Um, I began with the claim that Kant's politics is reflected perhaps more than any other ideas we've so far considered in the ideologies of the modern world, uh, as we find it in the West anyway. In today's political systems, we find varying degrees of democracy, but always the representative form. We find aspirations for international federated systems um, for the goal of securing the peace. And what did we call the aftermath of World War II? after we defeated the fascists, the people who didn't believe 
in these universal moral duties, but only in nationalistic interests or in worshiping the state as an end unto itself, right? And we held back the Soviets who were driven by the material interest of the proletariat, right? As the only driving force of history. Um, they were not, they didn't believe in yielding to an absolute moral law. No, liberalism beats both of those. And in the triumph of liberalism, we called it the long peace. That's revealing that that's basically what we wanted, right? Famously or infamously, Francis Fukuyama even wondered if it was the end of history itself. Um, you know, it was the at least the end of the long power struggles that had characterized history in every period before this, it seems. And so we find um, perhaps most, you know, presciently as regards Kant's political theories that the political realm today I would say this is the the biggest similarity it's seen as an outflow of the moral that our political goals our political orientations our struggles in the political realm they're seen today in the west as moral goals moral orientations moral struggles right the great irony here for the Nietzsche podcast is that Kant's most powerful challenge to Nietzsche then is one that I don't think he could have articulated himself because it requires the advantage of hindsight. It's to see how it is that Europe actually developed after Kant. Um, that challenge that I would say that Kant's political philosophy makes to Nietzsche, it's the very idea that um, we might invoke from Nietzsche's writing that moralism is solely idealism. And so always a condemnation upon reality as it is. Because in the wake of Kant, it seems that the world has continued to bring itself further out of immaturity, as he puts it, further into enlightenment, and that the political theory of optimism actually attained predominance. Um, but that's the very thing that Nietzsche opposes, which means isn't Nietzsche making the idealism Right? Isn't Nietzsche being the moralist? And isn't Kant's philosophy now simply the realist position? Right? At, which is sort of implied when I say this is all some of these ideas are so widely believed now, it almost seems mundane to say it. So that's the argument for Kant. Um, and I hope I've steel manned him as best I can. On the other hand, as Nietzsche might remind us, the fact that we all now espouse these ideas has nothing to do with it, with whether those ideas ever have been realized. The long peace in which sovereign nations no longer attack one another, no longer violate the moral duties to which a state is bound, that seems to be coming to an end. The international system has long sort of shown cracks at the edges. The suspicion of many is that perhaps the peace we've enjoyed has been more of an anomaly rather than the beginning of a new epoch. You know, for all the bluster about the state as a moral entity, which among even the most righteous of states from the West, these states who have embarked on moral crusades, right? Like the British Empire, they they or the United States, which which among them doesn't have a whole laundry list of crimes? Which of them is totally clean? Do any of them not have blood on their hands? Can we laud the British Empire for its quest to like put an end to slavery? when meanwhile the slave trade was part of their very rise to global dominance, their poisoning of China with opium was the source of their wealth? Can we treat America as a moral paragon for standing up for human rights and freedoms worldwide, right? Like now, so many Americans praising the protests in Iran. Um, 
But, you know, it's like the United States attempted coups in over 60 sovereign nations since World War II, and about a third of the time they succeeded. One of those countries was Iran, right? So when our wars sometimes blur the lines between adherence to a higher moral duty and securing natural resources, um, I would say, to sum up my critique, we've gotten very good at adopting the aspirational talk of Kant, but have we ever actually walked the walk? So I hope I've made stuffy old Kant as enjoyable as he can possibly be. And uh, so next time, we're going to get back to the raison d'etre of this podcast. Uh, we're going to get back into Nietzsche's philosophy. We spent a lot of time on influences this season, and we're going to dive back in Nietzsche, into Nietzsche's books, headfirst, really. So uh, join me next week. We're going to talk about a section in Human All to Human, A Glance at the State. That's all, everybody. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.